This is hell. Good morning, listeners. This is Board Operator Dan speaking to you directly on Thursday morning, July 7th, and again by facsimile on Saturday. Your host, Chuck, is out today undergoing the final surgery to address his persistent health issues. This final surgery is projected to usher in a new period of health and prosperity, not only for Chuck as an organism, but for the entire This Is Hell program. So I'm sure... So be sure to take a moment to send your prayers and vibrations to Chuck, and um, he'll be back in the studio very soon, delivering the bong-hitting journalism that this nation needs now more than ever. But for today, and for the rest of next week, while Chuck is recuperating, we'll be playing some great past episodes. We'll also have all-new Rotten Histories from Ronaldo Magaldi and Moments of Truth from Jeff Dorchin. And I have an all-new moment of truth for you today. It's pre-recorded, but is sure to be a scorcher. This week, in another episode of Super Truth, Jeff connects the dots between the Enlightenment and paranormal phenomena. That sounds good. We'll get to that after the interview. If you're listening live, there's still a little time to submit your answer to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you blowing up in honor of America? A lot of people blow up fireworks to scare dogs and destroy and destroy their own fingers, but I know our audience is populated with iconoclasts, so we want to know what unusual or outlandish things you choose to blow up in honor of so-called America. Head on over to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and submit your answer. At the end of the show, we'll select the best respondent and award them with their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. And since I'm all alone here in the studio, I guess the awesome responsibility of selecting a winner will fall to me. So if you want to game the system, tailor those last-minute responses to my sensibilities. I was looking through the archives, and this interview with Ajama Nagwaya and Kali Akuno from 2017 caught my eye. They're involved with Cooperation Jackson, a federation of worker cooperatives they have down there in Jackson, Mississippi, having to attend anti-democratic workplaces where some person gets to be my boss and nobody cares what I think about what we're doing or how we're doing it uh, has definitely been a low point to my existence up until this point. So I've always been on the lookout to alternatives for alternatives to that, and worker-owned cooperatives seem like they might fit the bill. I'm excited to hear more about their work. So let's listen along together right now to Chuck in 2017 speaking with educator, organizer, and writer Ajama Nangwaya and co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson, Nikali Akuno, and learn about the work that they're doing down there in Jackson. This is hell. We were told there is no alternative, that an economic system other than neoliberalism, unfettered capitalism, corporatism, financialization, whatever you want to call it, or its many parts, that was our only choice when it comes to economics. But there are organizations that insist that there is another way, and it may be catching on across the U.S. South. Here to explain is one of the co-editors of the book, 
Jackson Rising, The Struggle for Economic Democracy and Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. Our guest today is Dr. Ajamu Nangwaya. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ajamu. Okay, thanks a lot for um, having us on the program. I just want to tell our listeners that if they want to find out more about what's happening with Cooperation Jackson, they can go to the website cooperationjackson.org. So you write that back for many people in Jackson, Mississippi. Tuesday, February 25th, 2014, will forever be remembered as a day of infamy. On this day, Jackson Mayor Chokwe Lumumba died without warning or clear explanation, and with Chokwe's untimely death, the hope and promise he embodied for Jackson was nearly extinguished. For when he died, the vision of liberation he projected and the transformative plan he offered to attain it was almost buried with him. We'll get to that plan in just a minute uh, as far as what the future of uh, Jackson is, but uh, you mentioned working with many organizations in the process, including New African People's Organization, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, the People's Assembly, the Provisional Government of the Republic of New Africa. How much is this taking place in Jackson because of a very long and vibrant history of civil rights activism dating back to at least the 1960s civil rights movement and before? Did this take decades of activist culture to create? Well, I would even say more than a century. It's part of the resistance struggle of Africans in the United States and in the Southern United States and Mississippi in particular to achieve self-determination. So even after the enslavement, Africans had no, and Africans in the United States had no option but to look for a cooperative solution. So when, when it comes to mutual aid in the economic realm, Africans have been doing that in Mississippi for a long time. When it came to the question of even building political organizations or third subsidy organizations, this is something that has been going on. So the New African People's Party and the provisional government, the Republic of New Africa, are, are simply building on a tradition of self-determination. Because one of the things that we, we should be clear about, in spite of how neoliberal capitalism and even new um, liberal capitalist democracies are acting as if they are the only games in town, and they represent the highest aspiration of human development. Is that um, groups have been struggling, and Africans in particular have been struggling at a political level and the economic level for for centuries. From the landed here, we have been struggling because even Insulate insurrections represent an act attempt at self-determination. But in terms of the 1960s, the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa and the people who are fighting for civil rights, have been, we've been organizing the people using cooperatives, using um, collectivist type of economic projects to assert the rights of Africans um, here. So... Chokwe Lumumba and that new development, you know, are simply building on that long-standing tradition that exists inside Mississippi, in spite of what you may think of the terrorism and the apartheid that faced in the American South. We didn't just sat around, you know, just looking at oppressive conditions. We struggle, and of course, our struggles are usually shaped by the objective conditions, objective and subjective conditions that. Um, prevail in the environment. But it's a long-standing tradition that cooperative cooperation that is building on. 
We're also joined now by co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, Kali Akuno, who is co-editor with Ajamu on the book Jackson Rising, The Struggle for Economic Democracy and Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. Kali, often when there is a challenge to power like the kind that uh, Jackson Rising is uh, and Cooperation Jackson is offering, whenever there is that kind of challenge to power, Analysts in the media will say those challenges are always driven first and foremost by economic means or needs more than anything else. Uh, When the Arab Spring happened, they said this is simply because there's been an economic downturn in Egypt. Is what is happening in Jackson more than about just being about the bottom line? Is this about more than just the bottom line? Oh, it's about profound more uh, than the bottom line. Um, and if it was just uh, an immediate response, you know, say to the 2008 uh, crisis, uh, folks would be really missing the point uh, because uh, uh, the crisis in that regard uh, had hit the black community in Mississippi, particularly in Jackson, uh, generations ago. And what I mean by generations ago uh, you can go all the way back to the founding uh, of the state and the introduction of chattel slavery to chart the conditions, and you'll see a consistent uh, thread all throughout. So that level of kind of impoverishment, uh, deprivation uh, as a driving force uh, in that regard would have been there for centuries. So it's more than just your you know, uh, folks being thrown out of work uh, because in reality, uh, the, the real unemployment rate in uh, uh, most of the black community in Jackson, hovers between about 40 to 50 percent, uh, and that's in the best of time. Um, so, uh, is there an economic uh, dimension to the question? You know, definitely. Uh, but there are longer questions of uh, systemic oppression, uh, apartheid, as Jamu uh, mentioned, uh, and the ongoing struggle, really, for self-determination. Kali, when we started our conversation with Ajamu, we were talking about the long legacy of civil rights activism in Jackson and its role that is playing in the creation of groups like Cooperation Jackson, your work uh, and your organization. Cooperation Jackson has been working for more than 10 years uh, with the... uh, uh, Chokwe Lumumba campaign back in 2008 and 2009 that was in Ward 2 in Jackson. That seems to be mm-hmm. where Chokwe Lumumba's uh, political beginnings started, and then he brought this idea of cooperative economic planning to Jackson in general. And so just a question for you real quick, Kali, and it's just more of a little bit of background so people can understand what Jackson and maybe what Ward 2 is like. Is there something about Ward 2 in particular that would have created Created, would have nurtured an elected representative like Chokwe Lumumba? Well, let me actually go back further. Um, because um, in terms of looking at cooperatives, I think Ajamu spoke to it uh, correctly. Like the tradition is here. It preceded uh, Chokwe, preceded Cooperation Jackson. Um, you know, there's, there's an expression uh, of an association called the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives. Um, you know, which has been around, which is a division of the Southern Federation of, of Cooperatives, which has been around uh, in Mississippi for over uh, 20, 25 years. So it's been there. Um, and then even Chokwe himself uh, had a longer history training and association with cooperatives, uh, going back to trips to 
uh, the Bosch region in the late 1980s uh, to witness Mondragon before it was kind of, uh, uh, and to learn from Mondragon before it was kind of all the rage that it became uh, in a lot of corners of the world. So there's a great deal of kind of preparation uh, that went into his own development into the development of the Malcolm grassroots movement, looking at and analyzing uh, cooperative development uh, and, and seeing how it would help uh, further our work at kind of worker self-management and self-determination. Now, as for the conditions in, in uh, War II, War II is a very interesting uh, war. Um, uh, there... The, the highest concentration of kind of your, your black middle class uh, as it exists in Jackson uh, is concentrated there. But it is also predominantly, uh, there's a section of it called Presidential Hill, which is a very large um, housing development complex that got built in the 1960s. And it's one of the greatest concentrations of, uh, you know, impoverishment uh, in the city. And, that makes the, the largest voting block, uh, basically, in that, that ward uh, in the city. And so you kind of have these two kind of juxtaposition uh, kind of communities, that, which are, you know, separated by, for the most part, by like a freeway. Uh, um, you know, so you kind of have your across-the-tracks kind of uh, dimension to it. Uh, but the thing that, that I think uh, really enabled uh, Chokeway to first have a great deal of success there was him being a lawyer and him uh, and also him being, I should know, a, a basketball player. Now these things, both of these things are important uh, in regards to his relationship to the community uh, because he gave uh, over the years, he defended uh, hundreds of people in that community often for free. Uh, and he also coached, a basketball team in that community for over 20 uh, plus years, uh, specifically for the young men and women in that community and built relationships not only with them, lasting relationships not only with them, but more importantly with their parents and their extended family. And both of that wind up uh, being, I think, kind of very crucial to folks understanding him as a person, but also more deeply understanding, you know, what his politics were. Because the, even the, the basketball team, uh, was called the New African Panthers, so it was an expression of the political, you know, framework and ideology. And uh, folks were were taught uh, teamwork on the basis of acting as a unit, not acting as uh, an individual. And that you had to win, you had to build, you had to train cooperatively and collectively. So that was always infused uh, uh, in that work. But I think it was those unique kind of combination of uh, folks knowing him, what he stood for on the basis of decades of work that really enabled him to, uh, to win in that war, in particular, then eventually throughout the city. Ajamu, you and uh, Kali write that contrary to the propagandistic claim about capitalism being the only game in town, there are alternatives to this system. One example, as Kali was touching on it, one example that demonstrates in practice elements of a post-capitalist practice is the Mondragon Cooperative Experiment in the Basque region of Spain. And for those who don't know, you explain their success, the Mondragon Cooperation, 
uh, Corporation, sorry, is a network of cooperatives and other organizations with worker cooperatives at its center. In 2015, the Mondragon Corporation generated $12.11 billion in income, provided 74,000-plus jobs, invested 317 million euros in its uh, operation, achieved the figure of 43% of the workers' members being women, and had workers' owners constituting 81% of the cooperative's workforce. The Jackson-Cush plan, the plan that's being used in Jackson, and the emerging cooperative experiment in Jackson are heavily influenced by the Mondragon experiment and its interrelationship with the Basque movement for self-determination and sovereignty. In these movements, we have found many parallels with our struggle for self-determination and economic democracy in Mississippi and throughout the Black Belt region of the U.S. How unaware, Ajamu, how unaware do you think the public is of alternative economic models' success? How successful are co-ops, and to what extent are we just simply ignoring it around the world? The public is very much unaware of it. Um, If we look at the educational system, a student can go and do an undergraduate degree in business management or administrative studies, and and will come away from it with no understanding or knowledge or awareness that their economic that cooperatives are, are in operation. So even at, you know, in the formal educational system, where most of us will pass through, we're not exposed to that. We can study commerce, economics, and we will not be taught about the history of cooperatives and all cooperatives, worker cooperatives, and other forms of cooperatives emerge as a reaction to capitalism and the very um, exploitative conditions of the Industrial Revolution, where workers drew on their rural experience of cooperation to confront capitalist exploitation in urban centers when they created cooperatives. And people like Marx commented favorably and produced the cooperatives, the worker cooperatives. Um, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, the anarchist from uh, Russia, they commented favorably on that as the embryonic form for the, the laboratory for training people into cooperation and to show that capitalism is not the only game where the workers must submit to the dictatorship of capital or um, something that serves to, you know, the work relations of um, capitalism. So we, we have a work to do within our movement, and even within our movement, the left, um, and I'm saying the left broadly defined, including even people who may be Philosophical liberals, but they have a welfare tendency in terms of providing a minimum standard of living for people in society. The left, we are unaware of um, cooperatives and the usefulness, and those of us who are aware of it, we look at certain, you know, degeneration or corruption of cooperative principles or the accommodation of cooperatives, cooperatives to capitalism as that as the full potential of cooperatives, not realizing that. Inside of that, many cooperatives have adjusted themselves, accommodated themselves to capitalism. They still represent potential tools for social emancipation. Is what we do that will make a difference. It's not like an objective condition that they must accommodate themselves. For example, when we look at most worker cooperatives in the United States or throughout the world, do not see themselves as a part of the class struggle, that they will link up with the union movement and try to place worker self-management on the agenda as a way for us to increasingly control the work of world and to use network of cooperatives as space from which we um, fight capitalism. And I see that as a poverty of imagination, that we look at things as they are and think this is all, um, this, this, this is all that 
they can be. And we are not of that um, outlook. We believe we can use these tools to create liberatory spaces to fight capitalism because we must create a transitional program. That's what um, is happening in through um, cooperation, Jackson, is that we must be, we're developing um, the embryonic forms of the, that we'll find in the future um, socialist, communist society. And that's something we have to put back on the agenda that socialism is um, a possibility. So even without the purpose of socialism, what are we going to accommodate ourselves to? This type of Obvian, um type of society. We, and so we have, we have a lot of work to do in terms of doing public education and also demonstrating in practice what the possibilities are. As imperfect as they will be, because one of the things that we must make note of, as long as we live in, um, in the institutional environment of capitalism, the new economic and political forms that we are developing will not represent the true ideals in our mind. Because in some ways we have to accommodate our response to the dominant institutional environment, even while we're developing alternative, alternative, alternative forms, some people want the purity of the ideas in our head to be in practice. There will be an approximation until we create a new and just and free society. So we have a lot of work to do, and we can do it. Uh, Jama, let me just follow up on that real quick. Uh, we were just speaking with uh, The Guardian's George Monbiot, and one of the problems that he sees with the story that we tell about ourselves is that neoliberalism constrains political imagination. So if you have this alternative economic system being proposed and an alternative economic system or a political system already being embraced to a certain extent within Jackson, Mississippi, Ajamu, to you, what explains why the people of the movement have been able to overcome the limits of their political imagination that have been imposed on them due to neoliberalism? I think Kali hits it on the head when he talks about the long-standing work that Tucker has been doing, but also the long-standing work that the Malcolm grassroots movement has been doing in the community in terms of building the base of support, building relationships, developing a consistency where people will start to develop a certain level of trust in these progressive radical revolutionary forces that they're not just talkers are what I call pacifists, that they are involved in the community struggling with the people. One of the problems that facing the revolutionary radical movement today is that many of the radical petty bourgeois um, elements don't live in working class communities. And when I talk about um, the radical petty bourgeois, the revolutionary petty bourgeois, since the, the French Revolution, there's only two revolutions, the Haitian Revolution and the Mexican Revolution, where the petty bourgeois forces weren't the principal um, leaders or, or part of the leadership. The radical petty bourgeois would have marked um, Lenin, Angela Davis, Tucker Lumumba. These are people who have foregone their privilege and essential comic class suicide as advocated by Amilcar Cabral of Guinea-Bissau and become one with the working class. We, as radicals, must live in working-class communities and experiencing the challenges, security challenges, infrastructure, um, absence or declining infrastructure. Everything experienced by the middle class, um, by the working class, should be a part of our lived experience. And then we will organize because there are certain critical skills that we have. So part of the, the success and um, of cooperation is acting in with people to the 
have that long-standing gate building, building trust, building relationships, and having a political consistency where we're not being going for what is popular now, but we, we engage in principles intervention in the daily struggle for the people. But a key thing is that the people, the radicals, the revolutionary leadership, the catalytic part of the struggle, live in those working-class communities. They're not separate. They don't live out in the suburbs and come in and do some work and then go back home. They're right here on the ground with the people. Kali, how different would a transformed Jackson be from what it was prior to the ideas that were being pushed forward by Chokwe Lumumba. There was this plan called Jackson Cush Plan. The Jackson Cush Plan is subtitled The Struggle for Black Self-Determination and Economic Democracy. So how different would Jackson look like if this plan was completely implemented? It would look completely different. Um, and it would already, since the start of that, uh, campaign, you know, some uh, 10 years ago, they're already starting to look profoundly different. Um, you know, Cooperation Jackson's birth, uh, the election of Chokwe Lumumba, and now Chokwe Antar Lumumba, uh, are reflections of that change. Now, it's not the change in its totality uh, by any means, but it's a reflection of, of that change. And uh, what we hope and envision and are planning on uh, executing is making uh, Jackson uh, a city where the solidarity economy is the dominant uh, economy. Uh, we're making it uh, a city, we envision it being a city where the full complement of human rights are actually uh, respected, protected, and fulfilled. Uh, we see it as a place uh, where the role of uh, the state uh, has been widely uh, diminished and being replaced <clears throat> by direct the media, media, uh, direct democracy uh, in our communities uh, through people's assemblies and other democratic uh, institutions. Uh, we see it as a place uh, wherein uh, employment, as we understand it, has been uh, transformed uh, and that uh, we're doing uh, local, primarily local production uh, for uh, use uh, as opposed to just the production of commodities or things to be sold on the market. Uh, and this leads us into uh, the city being a profound place of uh, ecological and social uh, regeneration, uh, wherein we're healing our environment, uh, we're healing the social relationships and the damage that has been done from, you know, uh, millennia of, of patriarchy and heterosexism and, and centuries of uh, white supremacy and, and racism. Um, so it's this combination, what we're calling like the transition city vision, where you know it's a solidarity city, it's a human rights city, uh, it's a city where there's community production, you know, where we own and control and democratically uh, utilize these new forms of technology and are subjecting them uh, to the control of the community and control of workers. That's the type of city uh, that we envision, and it would be profoundly different place uh, than what it is now, what I would argue, than, than what exists anywhere in the United States. 
Kali, there are people, though, who are listening right now who might not be familiar with things like people's assemblies and cooperative economies because even when they are successful, as you and Ajamu point out, the success of the Mondragon Cooperative, it doesn't get the, oddly, it's not in the corporate establishment media. They're not broadcasting and telling people about the success of an alternative economic uh, system or political system. So uh, can you briefly explain to our listening audience the importance of a people's assembly and the importance of a people's assembly in creating a cooperative economy. Mm-hmm. Let me start here uh, um, with this notion and have people grapple with this. Um, you know, the, the United States, uh, despite all the rhetoric, is not a democratic society. And that's, that's a founding orientation for us in our work. Um, its political structure uh, is very centralized and very uh, individualized. Uh, that's number one, as, in, as you see it in a reflection of kind of the two-party domination uh, of the country. Uh, even there, uh, wherein people are uh, not beholden to constituencies, they're really just beholden to corporate interests because the way the parties are structured, uh, individuals can flip and choose because it's not a constituency which is actually choosing uh, the candidate. They're just choosing individuals. And that's a, a key feature that we could talk about at length about you know how undemocratic uh, in practice that really is. And then on a deeper level, you know, this is not a society which is in any way organized about economic democracy, meaning as a starting place, um, you know, we do not get to determine the conditions uh, uh, of our working environment. Most of us do not. You know, the vast majority in this country do not. We don't determine the hours. We don't determine the wages. We don't determine the product. We're alienated from what is produced. Uh, so we are trying to create vehicles of direct and participatory democracy and create spaces in our community where we have the ability to democratically choose and decide and determine everything uh, around uh, our social life. Uh, so the people's assemblies are bottom-up instructions on how do you create that. And for us, we're trying to do them for, number one, that's the kind of expression of dual power, but to serve two purposes. Number one, to be a check on the government. That's an essential piece. And then number two, uh, for us to build the democratic practice and the, the democratic knowledge and know-how for us to do the type of transformative building in our community where we are self-governing the projects around what we want our street to look like, what we want our neighborhood to look like, you know, what type of services are needed, what type of uh, economic activities are needed to make sure that, you know, everyone is cared for and is healthy, uh, have the sustenance they need, the shelter that they need. Uh, how can we do that on our own with the resources at hand, uh, which don't make us uh, dependent upon any kind of external force or source, uh, but particularly not have us dependent upon uh, capital in any fundamental way. And for us, we've been, excuse me, raising this argument that in our community, which people know from their experience, there is nobody coming to save us. You know, we got to do the the work of transforming our own community ourselves. And we, we, we welcome uh, principled outside support and resources that folks may want to lend and support from the outside. But how we utilize those resources will be determined on the ground. They will not be determined by 
you know, some external force, be it some, you know, want to be benevolent capitalist or foundation playing at a similar role, right? The community is going to determine what those resources might be utilized for. So we are trying to create this to be that expression. You know, it's a long-term uh, struggle because, you know, one of the things we, we have is kind of a mantra in, inside of Cooperation Jackson in particular is that, you know, we are struggling to learn how to be democratic because that is not something any of us have directly experienced or witnessed on a consistent systematic level. So we are struggling to transform ourselves to be actually democratic beings and democratic actors, you know, like in the world. And the people's assembly are a way for us to both practice that and to build that and to learn that. So, uh, Ajamu, uh, following up on what Kali just said, that we have to rethink the way in which democracy, not rethink, we need to actually embrace democracy. We re- need, need to rethink our politics. How much do we need to redefine our understanding of what the economy should be? Because Ajamu, a cooperative uh, economy, sounds good for workers, but is that necessarily mean it's good for business? There's always seems to be this idea within the economy that we live in now that it's a zero-sum game of business versus worker success. But maybe we have to think beyond that kind of framing. How much do we have to redefine and uh, redefine our understanding of what the economy should be in order for us to embrace or even understand cooperative economics? Well, from the outset, you know, in terms of the people, the, the people are in support of the conventional economy. They may, they may have an understanding, they may implicitly understand or instinctively understand that cooperative economics and cooperatively organized businesses with um, a commitment to end the exploitative relations within capitalism is actually bad news. A cooperatively organized community would be bad news for capitalist businesses because if we as consumers and workers decide that we're going to establish it in the city of Jackson, cooperatively organized businesses, even the supermarket could come under cooperative ownership. You could have a consumer cooperative model, model as exists, consumer and worker cooperative model as exists in Mondragon, where the workers and the consumers come together and own supermarkets in Mondragon. Um, so if we, ha- if we cooperatively organize a supermarket, we would need to shop at a capitalist um, supermarket, and the workers would end up working in that joint worker-consumer cooperative. If we need to purchase shoes, the shoe um, store could be a chain of worker cooperatives. So we would not need to patronize capitalist um, cooperation. We would support cooperative owned businesses. It, during the collapse or the Great Recession that took place in 2008, many people are saying we need to get rid of those banksters. But at the same time, most of us are even as progressive people. We deposit our um, our savings or transact financial transactions with capitalist um, banks. Yet we have credit unions that are member-owned and member-controlled. So if we're going to set up, if we decide we're going to keep our money in credit unions and transform credit unions ideologically and operationally into instruments of the class struggle, a cooperatively organized economy would be bad news for capitalist business, as it should be, because we're not of the perspective that you know, it is going to be a system of peaceful existence because if you have oppressive conditions and we have a space where we have liberatory um, practices, 
if we do not work to undermine the exploitation sector, it might come back one day to take us out. There's no peaceful coexistence between oppressive conditions and liberatory conditions. One must predominate. And in, in that sense, the um, cooperatives should be a threat to capitalist businesses because they represent worker exploitation. They represent economic production that's here to profit and not necessarily satisfying the needs of the people. Satisfying the needs of the people um, is simply incidental to what capitalists do. Their first priority is to make profit. Kali, uh, you write that the People's Assembly played a key role in launching the Coalition for Economic Justice in January of 2016 to fight a series of policy threats that were hostile to Jackson's municipal sovereignty and black political control. The motion to advance the Jackson-Cush plan was certainly stunted by Chokwe's death, but it was not halted. What were or are the threats that the Jackson-Cush plan, that Jackson Rising, that Cooperation Jackson uh, continue to face to this day? Who are the rivals to your kind of movement right now? We call them the neo Confederates. <laughs> uh, you know that's that's what they believe, and in essence, what they are. You know, and we unfortunately in the state of Mississippi, right now, uh, we have a Tea Party supermajority uh, in the state legislature and a Tea Party governor. Um, so that gives you a sense, and I hope hope the listening audience a sense of what we're dealing with. Um, you know, this, it's a far-right uh, element, um, you know, which is actively uh, in major contest as well, not only with us, uh, but with uh, the Republican Party uh, itself. And we uh, have gotten years of uh, getting used to uh, Trump-like tactics, uh, antics, uh, diversions and strategy here. I would say there's a number of things that uh, Trump has learned from uh, his friend uh, uh, Phil Bryant, who was the governor and, and relatively close uh, to Trump in terms of uh, strategy, in terms of understanding uh, his base uh, and how to relate to his base, um, and and you know knows the tune and knows the music. Uh, to, to to really flip things uh, on their head and use it in such a way uh, that our uh, points of agitation only fortify uh, his position. Uh, Bill Bryan is a master at that. Uh, but the immediate things, you know, confronting Jackson, you know, there's what we call uh, the seven deadly threats that the city is facing. Um, the main one being uh, a very public and concerted plan uh, to change the demographics of the city uh, as a means of eliminating not only black political power, but uh, a left-leaning political force uh, in the state, right? Which uh, I would say is one of the more radical ones in the country. I mean, it's not by uh, any accident uh, that not only would Chokwe be elected, but Chokwe Antar. That says a lot about the community itself and where it is politically and how it under understands its own interests. Uh, but the threats are, just briefly, um, the biggest one is there's a, there's a major medical corridor which is uh, being 
implemented as we speak. Now, this got laid out right after Hurricane Katrina when uh, the previous governor uh, basically stole a lot of uh, resources from the relief effort uh, in order uh, to execute a major plan of, of gentrification. Um, you know, that would, would ultimately transform the demographics of the city. Uh, that one is a major, it's a multi-billion dollar project that used eminent domain to basically uh, seize uh, two predominantly black working class communities and totally is going to gut them uh, and raise them to the ground over the course, I would say, the next 10 years. The thing that has been holding that up is a football stadium, which, is, which sits right in the middle of the, the eminent domain territory. And they just hadn't figured out or come to some agreement as to where they put it. Well, they've now agreed on where they're going to put it, and that's now the second, uh, I would say, deadly threat. And 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 that one is going to be in a, in a neighborhood called Battlefield Park, which they're planning on raising to the ground. That's an exclusively black working class community. And they're going to totally displace that community, which is roughly about 20,000 people, and build this new you know dome uh, stadium as another means of gentrification. Um, the major one outside of the, the hospital one, which is a, a serious long-term threat, is the privatization of Jackson's water uh, delivery system. And the key there is Jackson's uh, uh, infrastructure supplies the greater metro region. And the sale of water, the revenue that comes from the water, that funds 40% uh, annually of the city's budget. So. Uh, to lose that really puts the traditional out of operations of the municipality in serious jeopardy. You wonder, you know, what could you what you do with once you lose almost 50 percent of your, your annual budget? Uh, and that's some serious thinking that we have to to really deal with and address. And the, the major threat there is that the city is under a consent decree from the EPA uh, with some mandated fixes uh, over a 17-year period, with most of the front work having to be done in a five-year period. And guess what? That five-year period uh, uh, ends this year. So uh, that's a major thing that uh, Antar is going to have to confront. And then uh, some other pieces uh, are there's a one-lake, uh, uh, what they call a one-lake program, where they, they're trying to basically flood a major portion of uh, downtown Jackson, uh, which sits adjacent to a river, the Pearl River. They're going to flood that, or they're proposing to flood that, uh, because in our state, uh, you can do casinos on waterworks, um, which is what they want to do. There's also a way of removing a large portion of, of the community uh, once again. Uh, and we're facing one now, which is the privatization of our education system. Now, there's a temporary, albeit uneasy, compromise that just got worked out actually on Thursday. Uh, I'm not too pleased with it, and it's still a lot of room I think, to, to kind of contest on the edges. But the threat of uh, the state takeover uh, has been realized. The governor is basically in control. Um, but he's trying to, uh, in his mind, and this is, this is the tricky thing about it, um, the way that the law was constructed uh, to allow these, these uh, uh, state takeovers of the schools, uh, it enables kids from the schools that were taken over to migrate to other counties. And so to our north, immediate north, uh, is the richest county in the state, which is Madison County. And to our direct east uh, is the county called Rankin County, where the uh, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan resides. And, um, they, they, you know, there was a whisper campaign uh, that 
was was being pushed and being ordered was to say, okay, if they take it over, uh, we're going to send uh, uh, all of our children to Rankin and Madison County Schools. And as soon as that kind of got out, they put a break on uh, Phil Bryant just doing the normal, the governor doing a normal takeover because he does not want to be seen, given his politics and orientation, he does not want to be seen as uh, a governor who then has to enforce basically, in effect, another desegregation uh, order and program. So that's one that we're actively facing and confronting uh, now. And then the last one, um, they last year uh, they set up what's called the Capital uh, Accord or Complex. And this is basically creating a, a, a district uh, within the city that is completely controlled by the governor. And this district constitutes uh, the richest uh, uh, and, and most uh, economically productive areas within the city puts it under his administration. Uh, and the deal that got struck with the former, the previous mayor, was that he would get some pennies uh, on the dollar uh, to do some uh, uh, repair some of the roads uh, in Jackson. And in uh, 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 what he surrendered uh, was some of the authority and control. So this new district has its own police force. <clears throat> it has its own separate courts outside of uh, uh, the normal uh, court system. Uh, and is completely controlled uh, by the governor. So they basically created a new uh, apartheid-like structure uh, within the city itself. And so these are some things that, you know, uh, the Lumumba administration and our social movements here uh, are going to have to uh, confront and come up with some dynamic strategies uh, to defeat. And we anticipate that, you know, come January, when the state legislature, uh, uh, you know, comes back into a, a session, uh, that they're going to hit uh, Jackson with a whole slew of uh, these right-wing preventative laws, which will, you know, uh, bar us from uh, being a sanctuary city, which is something that Chokeway uh, pushed for and, and got passed in the city when he was a city council person. But also, more importantly, I think they're going to try to do some very serious measures to uh, block us from really implementing the sustainability and human rights programs that we've been uh, working on advancing. So we've got some challenges ahead of us. And Ajama, let me follow up on what Kali was just saying. Uh, you write how we have placed a particular focus on the effort to advance cooperative economics and build economic democracy. As the old saying goes, politics without economics is symbol without substance. So you can't only change politically you must change economically as well. In uh, your opinion, uh, Ajamu, how much uh, must you have economic democracy to have political democracy? How sustainable is the kind of economic democracy and political democracy that Jackson has right now in the face of all the threats that Kali is talking about? Can this experiment succeed with those kind of threats from the state? Yes. Economic democracy and political democracy go hand in hand because if we take it that anything that impacts us, any decisions that impact the lives of the people should be shaped by the people. It takes a political process and we say it must be a participatory democratic process that makes a decision. So there are decisions around cultural policy, educational policy, economic policy. It must be determined by the people who will be impacted, impacted by the decision taken within the economic, social, political realm. So we must 
have political democracy, a direct democracy where the people govern the communities in which they live. So if we're talking about economic democracy and there's no political democracy, then how will what type of political decision-making process will exist inside the economic ventures or the economic system that we create? So political democracy, participatory democracy, direct democracy is essential to um, the economic experiments that we need or the economic realities that we need that deviate um, from capitalism. So they go hand in hand. And, you know, we can, you know, create those things as the Jackson people Assembly is doing, creating a process where local people are shaping what the priorities should do, and then we pursue them. And it's not a simple thing where the people come and symbolically um, make the decision and then they, a group of experts go and implement it. It's an ongoing process where the people are deliberating over the issues that affect them, setting the, the, setting the goals and coming up with the implementation, implementation strategies, and they are the ones that are carrying out that type of work. It's not a body of experts ruling the people, but the people themselves. And it's for that reason. When Kali talked earlier about we trying to learn how to be democratic, we must be trained. We must build the capacity of the people, provide them with the skills, the knowledge that's needed, and also the attitude is now changed that we must self-govern ourselves. Because we can have the knowledge and skills, but if we don't have the belief structure and the new value set that we should rule, we should make all the decisions that impact us. We could just have um, a symbolic commitment to democracy, but in practice, that is not what um, would prevail. So economic democracy needs a political um, democratic um, process in order to work, because we don't take the stance that means and ends are distinct. The means that we use will shape the ends that we are seeking. So if we use top-down means in pursuit of democratic ends, it will not work because means are ends. And that's, all we, that's the approach that we take to it. Uh, just one real quick question for you, Callie, before we get to the final questions for both of you. Uh, Callie, so how much is this kind of movement, how much is this cooperative economic model that's being used in, at least partly being used in Jackson, Mississippi, how much is this being exported to other places? To what degree is this kind of alternative economic model being embraced in other parts of the South today? I think widely. I think widely. I mean, there are, um, with in, in some direct contact with us, uh, but a lot of forces that just contact us, saying they've been inspired by our work. Um, you know, there's a, a new cooperative uh, Memphis effort. Uh, there are three different new major cooperative efforts uh, in uh, New Orleans. Uh, there's a cooperation Birmingham, uh, which is developing as a cooperation mobile. Uh, which is developing. We're doing some some uh, joint work and training uh, with uh, some cooperators uh, in uh, Gulfport, uh, in Biloxi, uh, Mississippi. Um, there's some new uh, forces that we've been uh, relating to that are looking at doing uh, some uh, direct work in forming of a cooperation Houston. Uh, so it's spreading, uh, but it's also spreading, you know, throughout the country. We were fortunate last night to host a, a group of uh, uh, young cooperators uh, from the Bronx, uh, New York, 
and we're planning on doing some direct exchanges with them uh, again in uh, January where they're coming back to spend, I think, about three-week period uh, with us doing some joint work and training and, and skill sharing. Uh, but there's also there's a cooperation uh, Buffalo, there's a cooperation Richmond out in California. Uh, just got an email uh, several days ago. Some folks wanted to form a cooperation in Los Angeles. I know there's some organizing work towards a cooperation D.C. So I think the message is spreading. Uh, which is a good thing, um, you know, and we're going to have to, I think, step our game up uh, to be intentional and develop the, the capacity to build direct relationships between all of these uh, efforts. Uh, so we're mutually supporting each other. We're doing uh, skill shares and resource shares and building, I think, uh, most importantly, over time, building an alternative economic network uh, where we're doing direct uh you know, uh, shares and exchanges, and we can be, you know, begin to create our own, you know, uh, value and supply chains, which get us out of some of the dimensions of, you know, the, the capitalist circuit, you know, which is the aim and directive that we have. Uh, so we see things moving in a very positive direction, not only in, in the South, uh, where we think this is important, but, uh, you know, about the country. So it's a good time, uh, even though it's a challenging time. And for our listeners uh, in the book that is co-edited by our guests today, Kali Akuno and Dr. Ajama Nanguaya, uh, Kali has an entire chapter on the kind of organizing that he has been doing, the kind of activism that he is doing called the Build and Fight. So you got to make sure that you get the book, Jackson Rising, The Struggle for Economic Democracy and Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a lot of great essays in here. We hope to be returning to this book and having more and more of its contributors on in the, fu- in the future. But our final question, as we do with all of our guests, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Kali. Cooperation sounds great, but... Doesn't competition lead to motivation, initiative, and innovation more than cooperation? Don't we need innovation, initiative, motivation, all those things brought on by competition in order to not only better our economy, but better ourselves? You want to, you want to start first on that, Ajama? No, I'll let you go with that, Kali. I have a different one for Ajama. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I thought it was for both of them. I would, I always, when I confront that question, put before us that, you know, human history spans, you know, at least uh, 200,000 years, at least, and I would argue longer. And in the form of kind of settled society that we live in, you know, give or take, it's about 10,000 years. Uh, has competition been a dynamic, and is it a general dynamic? Yes. Has it been the dominant dynamic in human culture and civilization? No. Uh, you, we are a species like most mammal species. We we survive more so on the basis of cooperation and solidarity than we do with competing uh, with each other, right? Uh, and these two things, I think, in a general dynamic, uh, support each other because there is a competition, you know, just in, in nature around the limited resources. Uh, but human ingenuity has found ways uh, to transform the natural world to suit some of our purposes, uh, to create, to, you know, abundance and supply. And that has been the dominant trend uh, that led us to where we created what I would call a monster, you know, a, an aberration of a system 
which leads to producing in excess and is now leading us, you know, with this dynamic of accumulate or die and, and compete or die, uh, which is now leading us far over the cliff and heading towards an ecological apocalypse. And if we want to keep heading in that direction, I think it's pretty clear. And this year, I think it's made it clear where we're going. And if we're going to get out of this mess, it's going to take a far greater degree of coordination and cooperation than we've seen and witnessed over the past 500 years. So I think the choice is very clear. Like we either uh, uh, cooperate and socialize or face the barbarism that's at hand and the imminent destruction, not only of our species, but I think of complex life on this earth. It's some pretty simple uh, indirect choices that we're facing that I think we got to take some uh, ideological blinders that have been placed before us to serve the existing system, take those off and confront reality and get busy about the regenerative work that's necessary, and that takes cooperation. Speaking of ideological blinders, then you'll love this question I have for Ajamu. Ajamu, it's a lot more simple, yet the answer is probably a lot more complex than the question I asked Kali. Ajamu, is Jackson rising, is cooperation, cooperative Jackson, cooperation Jackson, is it all just a communist plot? Well, first of all, um, when people hear this term communism or communist, they may become startled, but if they understand what a communist society is, not the monstrosity that once existed in the Soviet Union, but a communist society is a society without a state, it's without um, classes, and it's a society that's self-organized by the people. So when the people realize what communism is, and what, what communist is, they would gladly wish for the communist era to dominate. So I would have no problem with saying that if we are trying to end class rule, where there's no dominant class in society, which would necessitate the existence of a state with its military and its judicial system and governmental system to dominate the large the producing class, the majority of us in society, people should welcome cooperatives being used as a gateway to create a stateless, classless, and self-organized, self-managed society, the communist society. So I'm proud to say that I have no problem with it being perceived as a communist plot. It's not a plot, because a plot is something secretively. All we're saying, we want economic, social, economic, um, political democracy, and there's no plot around that. The plan is laid out. Uh, a plot is something more conspiratorial and secretive. There's no plot, there's no hidden agenda. The only agenda is economic democracy, political democracy, and people self-governing themselves collectively because cooperation is, was the basis for human social evolution and competition. You can exist just based on competition. It's cooperative that's the motive for social evolution and our continued social evolution as people. One thing I'll say to listeners, if you'd like us to come to your community, you can organize book talk, book launches, so that we can come and share the information here, and hopefully you may be inspired to create a cooperation where you are, cooperation, um, whatever the city is, so that we can create this as a mass movement, because we can challenge neoliberalism, capitalism, um, liberal capitalist democracies, but we must start to organize 
on a 24-7 um, basis because how we're, or, or we're responding to oppression today is very episodic because we're using the mobilization approach to emancipation where a crisis emerges, we respond to it, then we sit back down and wait until the next crisis. When you're organizing as what's going on in Jackson, you're organizing programs, institutions, projects, and you're doing it 24-7 on a 24-7 basis. You're building the capacity to keep the self-manage these programs and projects and institutions. So please invite us to your city or your town or your campus so that we can talk about this book and make the book available to you and we can we can infect the discourse about liberation with cooperation as opposed to the very um, twisted, competitive, selfish, greed that's been pushed by capitalism. Um, we can we can make it happen. But let's do it together. Invite us out to your town and cities and campuses. Let's get this work done. Ajamu, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Thank you to you as well, Kali. Kali Akuna is co-editor with educator and community organizer, Dr. Ajama Nguaya of Jackson Rising, The Struggle for Economic Democracy and Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. It's a fantastic book, and you should all check it out. You can find out more by going to cooperationjackson.org. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. All right, this is Dan Hill back in 2022. That was Ajama Nangwaya and Kali Akuno talking about Operation Jackson. People want dignity, they want self-determination in the face of systemic racism and a history of oppression. The black community in Jackson, Mississippi, have developed strategies for self-determination in the form of federated worker cooperatives, and everyone would be enriched by paying attention to and learning from their example. Ajama's point that successful revolutionaries need to live with and work with the working class makes sense to me. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't know what they were talking about. It's also exciting to think that in the process of forming worker collectives, we would allow people to work with a lot more dignity, and at the same time, we'd also be forming groups whose power would ultimately rival the existing anti-democratic structures. I found that to be really inspiring. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Okay, I'm, I'm getting word that we have a pre-recorded, all-new moment of truth ready for transmission. All right. All right, we'll go to that now. Super Truth, the yellow rain of San Guadarico. Are there any real mysteries left? Clearly, we're not the doe-eyed, innocent public we once were, back when Howdy Doody and Alka-Seltzer ruled the popular zeitgeist. It's not enough for things to be true anymore. Now they must pass a more rigorous test, the test of believability in the laboratory of public opinion. And yet somehow there still remain unsolved phenomena to boggle the jaded mind, shake us out of our trances, and remind us never to trust our senses, our reason, our memory, or the evidence. 
We live in a truly miraculous time when anything can be true, but only the best things can be super true. It was a day like any other for young Avalia Sementez. She woke before dawn to steal foxes from the furrier's fox house, skinned them, fed them to her carnivorous chickens, and sewed their pelts into the expanse of fur she was accumulating, which was destined to become the most elegant set of window treatments on the entire island of San Guadarico. As she washed the blood from her hands in the galvanized tub next to the well, she felt the first big drop of rain. It was a raindrop big as a lobster, and it struck her on the back of the neck. Then another fell next to her, and still another. They were big, yellow drops of rain, as big as bananas. In fact, they were bananas. Before she had time to absorb what was happening, bananas were raining from the sky over Avalia's entire village of Canejos Corners. By noon, the rain had stopped leaving the entire region for five miles in every direction covered banana-deep in flesh and peel. Many cheerful goats were hobbled in their enthusiasm, unable to stick their landings. But the danger to goats was minimal compared to the obese, sweaty immensity of the mysteriousness of the banana apocalypse. Other strange precipitations have given the people of Earth cause to be unnerved. There was the famously documented reign of frogs in both a small village in Mexico and the P.T. Anderson movie Magnolia. There was the reign of fish in Iowa at some point in recorded history, and of course the deluge of cats and dogs in the proverbial dimension. But it is the reign of bananas that has most tweaked the cranial thinkverst of the ultra-believing devotee of supertruth. And why is that? Is it because the banana is an atheist nightmare, because it could only have been created by a Christian god? Could a random process really come up with a fruit that sits so perfectly in the human hand, comes with a pull tab like a canned soft drink? Maybe in a hundred million years, but how could a banana have that kind of attention span? Wouldn't Jesus have to have designed it, and not any Jesus, but a white Jesus? If one starts from the premise that the earth is very young, all manner of interesting mysteries follow logically. An argument can be logically sound in every respect, yet still be completely wrong. There's a school of thought called the School of Thought. It was founded by Jesse Richardson, who, after 20 years in advertising, founded www schoolofthought.org to use his powers for good instead of evil. The school of thought is of the school of thought. That fair, calm, rational discussion is one of the keys, if not the main key, if not the only key, to saving humanity from self-destruction. The naively inspirational saying repeated on their homepage runs as follows. Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a child to think, and she'll grow up to enact legislation that saves our resources for future generations. Obviously, beginning from this very moment in human history, teaching a child to think so clearly and rationally that she arrives by herself at the exact political position needed to solve climate change and pollution is too little too late, and most definitely playing the long game after the horses are out of the barn. 
The School of Thoughts projects involve posting articles on enlightenment values and selling cards and posters listing logical fallacies and cognitive biases, presumably to spread the enlightenment gospel. The enlightenment and its values, having fallen out of favor as democracy itself, enlightenment's flagship government style, has been revealed to have been oligarchy disguising itself as popular rule for the past couple of centuries. The crazy thing about the school of thought is that it believes people can be trained to debate rationally and learn to avoid cognitive biases. What they don't understand is for that to be effective in saving anything, there has to be a source of unbiased information, and we know there is no such reliable source. So the school of thought, albeit with its heart in the right place, nevertheless argues a certain point of view, perhaps believing it is doing so without irrational biases entering into its thinking at any point. Actor, champion of rational discourse, and center leftish gay rights spokesperson Stephen Fry does a voiceover for one of their videos urging people to Please agree to the rules of civil conversation. And rational, positive history spinner and popular author Steven Pinker, criticized in a Moment of Truth essay entitled The Souls of Pinker Folk, August 25th, 2021, has his photo displayed somewhere on their site, indicating at least his tacit endorsement, if not stalwart support. Bill Gates is touted as having said something nice about one of their card games, I think. But Fry and Pinker can't even agree on the correct way to spell their first name, admittedly a small quibble. As human electronic media has proven, there is no such thing as an ultimately trustworthy source of information. Everything can be called into question if one only has the will. And so, no matter how rationally one may argue, if the premises of one's argument are questionable, all the logic in the world won't help you. Even speaking from a purely anthropocentric point of view and ignoring the bias of anthropocentrism, one always begins one's thinking on an irrationally chosen foundation. Because what someone cares to investigate is not an intellectual matter, but an emotional one. Apparently, choosing to care about sustaining Earth's resources and facilitating the eventual freedom from exploitation of the community of our fellow humans is a premise no more rationally arrived at than choosing one skin color or religion as most worthy of life or to privilege the right to private ownership and accumulation over all else, including the survival of the species. In fact, you are more likely to hear complaints about logical fallacies from champions of private property than, say, your average socialist. The proof, however, is in the pudding. In this case, banana pudding. Yet another person named Stephen, this one spelling it yet a third way, with a PH in the manner of fry, but with an A in the second syllable rather than an E, had been vacationing on San Guadarico Island on the date in question, staying in an Airbnb in Conejos Corners, not far from Avalia Cementes's well, and witnessed the banana deluge. Third, Stephen was also a supporter of the school of thought, and while bananas rained down upon him, he yelled to the sky, there must be a rational explanation for all of this. As if in answer, the mischievous sky launched and landed directly in third Stephen's face, a banana cream pie, the one and only pie to precipitate on that day of raining bananas. So once again it was proven that super truth doesn't care about your inability or unwillingness to accept it. This has been the moment of truth. Good day!
Jeff was blowing hot on that one. That was a face melter. It's a real pleasure to hear a, an artist in full command of his creative powers blowing hot like that. I really enjoyed inflicting that on all of you. Um, all right, let's rattle off a few of your answers to this week's question from hell and select a winner. Remember, this week's question from hell was, what are you blowing up to honor America? We just had the fourth. Usually people blow up fireworks. What do you blow up? Kim G blows up bald eagle scat. Just imagine that. Bird dung flying through the air. That's fun to think about. You'd probably need a lot of it, like a little a little bit of eagle poop isn't anything. You'd need a big pile. Austin R wants to blow up the DNC donations hotline. That makes sense, that attitude. DNC is deplorable and craven. Um, that's all the responses I see so far that are new this morning. Rockin' responses this week include Peter K., who said he was blowing up balloon animals in the shape of Donald, Donald Trump's hair. That's poetic imagery. I liked Neil C.'s enigmatic answer, the future, and the lateral thinking it made use of. But for my money, I think the very best response was Andrew S.'s. He said he would blow up Stone Mountain. For those of you that don't know, Stone Mountain is a mountain outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia. It has an enormous relief sculpture of the Confederate monster Robert E. Lee and other racist Cretans carved into it. White supremacists love it and like to congregate there, but I don't. I hate that kind of stuff. And I would be delighted to hear that the citizenry had convened and reached a democratic consensus that in a safe and controlled way that this super racist and hurtful monument would be exploded off the mountain. The mountain itself is fine, that should remain, but the sculpture's gotta go. That would be excellent. So congrats to Andrew S. Fire off an email to seb at thisishell.com. Let him know what you'd like as a prize from our online store, thisishell.com, and we'll get that to you directly. That about wraps up this, uh, this week's show. If three free shows was not enough this week, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com. This is hell. And for just four bucks a month, you can get to hear all new monologues from Chuck every week, as well as deep cuts from the vault, interviews from the past 28 years of This Is Hell, not online, anywhere else. Tomorrow at 10 a.m., patrons will get to hear an all-new pre-recorded monologue where Chuck talks about his surgery, among other musings, and we play... A heart-wrenching interview with the parents of activist Rachel Corey, who, while trying to prevent the demolition of Palestinian homes in Rafah, was herself tragically bulldozed to death by the Israeli army. Thank you for joining me. We'll be in the studio next week playing more classic interviews. Until then... <laughs> until then... My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>